Welcome to Positive Disintegration Podcast. This is episode 15, Creativity and Authenticity. G'day, wonderful people. Welcome back to Positive Disintegration, Framework for Becoming Your Authentic Self. I'm your host, Emma Nicholson, and with me is co-host, Dr. Chris Wells. Hi, Chris. How are you going today? Hey, Emma. I'm well, thanks. How are you? Good. I'm very excited about today's guest. Me too. Me too. This is going to be a good one. It's always good to have someone on the podcast who's enthusiastic about what they want to talk about, and I think that sums up Melissa. Agreed. Our guest today is Melissa Bernstein. As co-founder of the tremendously successful toy company, Melissa and Doug, Melissa has spent the last 30 years helping children discover themselves, their passions and their purpose through open-ended play. Now, after our own personal journey of self-discovery and acceptance, Melissa founded Lifelines to help adults discover their purpose and unlock their full potential. Welcome, Melissa. Hi. Being a listener, I am so excited to be here. And thanks for listening too. We appreciate it. It's incredible, actually. I have thoroughly enjoyed every single episode. That's so nice to hear. Thank you. Well, Melissa, I think it was around this time last year that I was first introduced to your book, Lifelines. You know, it it came out and and people in the Dabrowski community right away were excited and enthusiastic about it because you talk about the importance of discovering overexcitability in your life. And I mean, when I read your book, I saw so clearly so many connections with the theory. And so I'm so, so pleased that you're here with us today to talk about it and to talk about yourself and your journey. And I guess the thing that I wonder, which of course, as you know, as a listener, I ask everybody is, I mean, how did you discover overexcitability in Dabrowski's theory? It's a great question. And I discovered it much too late because I discovered it in my late forties. And I'm talking, I am very well read. Like I love, I'm so passionate about reading and I never came across this. And it was really just by accident, which makes it even more, I'd say, critical that we share Dabrowski's theory with the world. And it came, wow, it's a pretty circuitous route, but it started from a podcast that I listened to by a guy, Jonathan Fields, called The Good Life Project. So I was born you know, highly overexcitable with an existential meaning crisis, which we can get into later. But basically, because the world didn't want to see this dark, despairing person, and I could never really show who I was, I, my entire life, adopted a facade. And the facade was basically this shiny self that said, everything's great, everything's fine, and really hid the reality of who I was entirely from the world. But as I began to get older, I think it was the cry of my soul to be seen authentically, got louder and louder and louder. And I was listening to this podcast where people were sharing their deep, dark sort of life stories. And I believe I was doing this to try to get the courage to do it myself because I was terrified of showing who I was. And the host of the podcast talked extensively about his favorite book, which was Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. And although I had this slim volume on my bookshelf, I hadn't read it in like two decades. And when I had read it sort of in my 20s, it hadn't really spoke to me, but I decided to just read it again. And I could read it in an hour. It's a really short book. And there was a phrase in that book Uh, at the end, it was logotherapy, a form of existential analysis. And I had never heard the word existential either. So I looked it up. And when I read what existential angst, existential despair, existential analysis were, it was like I had been struck by a lightning bolt because it described this disease, this unsettledness that I had experienced my entire life. And the more I read about those who experience existential angst, existential depression, uh, I believe it was James T. Webb 
made the connection and talked about those who tend to experience sort of, and, and are able to ponder higher realities, um, also tend to have overexcitable personalities. And that was the very first time I heard the word overexcitable and I began to read about Dabrowski. Um, and as many say, it was this idea of these qualities that I had so despised in myself and wanted to expunge being seen as something potentially positive. That was the thing that blew my mind. I think that we can both relate to that discovery of overexcitability and realizing that we had seen these aspects of ourselves so negatively. One thing that I want to ask you is, I mean, do you have any advice for people out there who are like, oh my gosh, I'm doing that. I'm not being my authentic self in the world. Like, what would you say to that, to these people? Wow. I mean, so for me, that journey inward to self-acceptance took five years and it took three, it took three paths. So I think it's going to be one of a few paths. The first one was the therapeutic path. And, you know, part of my issue was I was a perfectionist and I had an expectation of how I should be. And I did not meet that expectation at all because physically it was nothing like I look socially. It was nothing like I am Um, performance wise. It was perfect all the time, which unfortunately I wasn't. And I always fell short and I truly despise myself for not being the image of what I wanted to be. So the first path I had to take was admitting I needed help, right? To, to start to accept myself. So that took the form of a therapist like you and admitting that I needed help. And that took basically a very traditional CBT um, path, whereby it turned out because I had this existential nihilism, this, this pessimism in me that I think a lot of us who don't accept ourselves, we have a high level of neuroticism and we tend to ruminate, we tend to feel a lot of guilt, we tend to feel a, a lot of worry and we tend to judge ourselves like constantly. We're very self-critical. So for me, it really wasn't a process of admitting all these negative feelings I feel about myself, every single one of them. And I literally made a list. In fact, in my book, I include like 20 of them. You know, a lot of them were just negative things about myself. Others were just negative statements about the world. Like the world, you know, the world will never be my friend. I will always be alone, right? I will never achieve the things I want to achieve. And then one by one, learning to reframe them. And really looking at each one, one at a time and saying, is this true? Why do I believe it? What are the events in my life that led me to develop this very negative view of myself in the world? And how do I practice believing a different truth? And the truth is like, if you've been telling yourself these things, you know, for as long as I have, which is nearly a half century, like it's not going to change overnight. I can't just say the new truth one time and expect it to just like, oh, okay, now I'm great. Like what I realize is I might have to tell myself this new truth and stop myself every time I start to say that same thing. It's going to take, you know, thousands of reframing for my neural pathways to change direction. So I think it's about acknowledging the things we're saying and just it's it's painstaking. Unfortunately, it's no quick fix. It's one by one. And I can tell you five years later, uh, I still the, the first thing I think is always still the negative. But then I stop myself. Right. If I say, what an idiot, Melissa, like you shouldn't have done that, which I do. I I know I'm like, ah, you're doing it. You know, the inner therapist. And then it's, and then I go through what I call the journey to inner space, which is my own journey. I stop and it's a five letter thing I go through to basically like stop myself and correct my misperception. That's exactly what so many of our listeners need to hear. I'm sure of it. I deal with this a lot with people who their minds are really like the enemy, the thing that, and that was me too. Totally. Totally. 
Me too. Totally. I was so, I was the abyss of pessimism. And literally when you're a nihilist, you believe there's no meaning to existence. And we as individuals have no ability to make meaning in a meaningless existence. So I truly felt that I was a victim of darkness. And every thought in my head was a victim mentality. It was so negative. And this, I call it this demon in my head, literally told me like basically just end it because there will never be meaning to existence or your life. And I realize now, you know, that that can, can do you in. And sort of my, my life mission became when I was young and, and this, this demon in my head was telling me all these horrible things. I would just cry to myself in my bed at night. I would say, I just want space. I just want space. And what I realized that was, was I felt like my brain and my heart were intertwined. And all I wanted was my heart to be free and engage in creative liberation. Like I knew that if I could somehow extricate my head from my heart, like I would just be free to create whatever I wanted because my imagination was boundless. But that brain, that rigid, demonic, critical brain wanted to take me down. So thank goodness I'm still here. And I was able to gain that little tiny bit of distance, you know, and and separate my heart enough that I could begin to see my brain as just a bunch of punishing lies and mistruths. Well, so I wanted to ask you, um, you said about the discovery of overexcitabilities and We've talked about this before and the using the analogy of the ugly duckling and realising that you're not a defective duck. You're, in fact, something else entirely together. And more the point, you're not alone. Did that, realising that there are other people out there like you, also help you with that journey of forgiving yourself? It helped me so very much because once I learned about existential angst, which I am afflicted with, and overexcitabilities, which I realized, oh my gosh, I have all five and all five to the highest degree, my life changed. In fact, I literally sobbed for an entire week because I had realized that, yes, I wasn't like, I'm the antithesis of labels and being put in boxes And I despise process and form. But in this case, a label was the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Because when I knew that I have OEs and I have existential depression, it was like, I'm not alone. And in fact, like some of the people I'm kind of like hanging out with are pretty awesome. And then the best thing to come of it was I saw a connection between creativity and these overexcitabilities. And here I had thought, like my whole life, I've created from the boundless expanse of white space and I see things in my head. And I I just thought, whatever, that's what everybody does. Like I never thought about it as anything, even remotely special. In fact, I wanted to like rip that out of my head because I couldn't stand it because they never stop. Like if if I allow it, like just one thing after another. And I despised it. I hated myself for that. I just wanted to be carefree and like play and go out and laugh and be, you know, easy and have like this really sociable disposition. And instead I was muttering to myself all the time and like having to write things down because they were in my head. Anyway, you know, this idea that these, these overexcitabilities were the, the source of my creativity. It was like, Uh, like mind-blowing, like unfathomable. And I saw that I wasn't alone. And then the other thing I saw with kind of this like like epiphany, I guess you'd say, just that was so, um, for the first time, I thought that I had somehow taken this nihilism that really came this close to you know, ending my life. And I had somehow by some miracle transformed it into light through making these toys. And that that was an existential choice. And 
I had, I saw without even realizing it. So this is the second path. So the first path I took was traditional, you know, therapy to heal. And um, it, is, it was amazing because it was re- reframing, right? All my pessimism, all my negativity into positivity. But the second and third path were my own paths because I am a rabid, you know, as, all, as you are, rabid learner and like love more, nothing more than connecting dots. So the second path was philosophical slash spiritual. And I had never read philosophy my entire life. Um, and once I started to read Viktor Frankl and he referred to, you know, like Friedrich Nietzsche, who says he who has a why can bear through any how, I started to read these philosophers like rabidly. And of course, reading Dabrowski, he loved philosophy and studied Plato, as you know, on up. So I started reading these philosophers and I realized like they had been in the same boat that I had been. They were all nihilists. And then they had struggled as I and so many others and had found the path to existentialism, which is finally getting out of that horrible victim mindset and taking responsibility for making meaning in our lives. And by channeling that darkness into light, I had essentially done that without even knowing it. And that like I had this will to meaning and this will to live that was potentially that third factor. You are a beautiful example of the theory in action. I mean, people ask me all the time, well, what is the theory about? And they want it in this, in a little nutshell, of course. Right. And so what's the theory in a nutshell? It's a theory of inner transformation. And that's exactly what we see in your story is that you were able to transform, like you said, like this darkness into light. Yeah. And I even have a metaphor for it because, you know, I, I live in my imagination. So everything has to be very concretized in order for me to like understand it. But, you know, I think about it for the first 25 years of my life, basically it all started with darkness. It started with, and I think about it as almost like a writhing bunch of snakes that were just in me, like insidiously, you know, running through my body. And I basically couldn't control them. And if I think about creativity as a water faucet, one side is dark and one side is light. The light side was turned off from birth. This angst was being channeled only into more darkness. And it was continually running. But because I was only creating darkness from darkness, it never saw light. It was so despairing and so dark that I never, so I never shared anything I created with anyone until my first toy. And I was about, you know, 23, 24 years old. And I had thousands of verses. I had tons of music I had written, but I was too terrified to share it. And because I never shared it, it never brought me meaning, right? I had a meaning crisis and I was channeling all this creative stuff, but it never saw the light. So it never brought meaning. But when I realized that I could make toys just by accident, it was like I took that very same horrible despair, but instead of just being a victim of it and it just channeling into darkness, it was like for the first time I said, nope, I'm going to turn off that dark faucet. And actually there's a light faucet. I'm going to turn that on and I'm going to channel the very same you know, material into light. And that was the first sense of empowerment I felt my entire life. For the first time, I was like, wait a second, this might have a purpose, this horrible anxiety and depression. And it ended up becoming, you know, my salvation for over 30 years. Melissa, when you're talking about the creative stuff, that resonates with me and with a lot of things that I kind of see on Facebook about people having like imposter syndrome and this drive towards perfectionism. So I'm one of those people who drew and painted for many years and they never saw the light of day. They all went into a box and no one saw them except for me because I was like, they're not good enough to go online. I wrote poetry, never put them online. But as after sort of discovering Dabrowski and getting the courage up, to 
you know, share this with people. I started posting photos of my drawings on Instagram and stuff. Can you speak to people out there who might similarly be very creative, very imaginative, but have this sort of drive to perfectionism or maybe this darkness that's like telling them like not to do it? Yeah. I mean, so my life mantra is step on out of the head and move into the heart, free to channel all dread into jubilant art. So we have to purely stay in the heart when we create because the, the perfectionism, the, the critique is all in the head. And if you, if you go in your head, you're not even, you're not, you're not creative. You, you can't be creative in your head because it's too rigid, right? Creativity, pure creativity is boundless. So my advice to them is first off, don't even think about the result, right? Because it, it's the result is is the noun, is the head, is the rigidity. The verb is where you want to live. You want to live in your heart. So create it purely. Don't even think about the, the, the result because the act of creativity in its own right is the most healing thing of all. And then what I would say is after it's birthed, right? After you're holding it in your hand, you know what? Start small. You don't have to, you don't have to give it to the entire world, but promise yourself I'm going to share it with one person today and, and make it someone start with someone who's going to, no matter what they're someone who's going to be like, this is amazing. You know, whether that's your mom or your best friend and start small. And, and I would say, just start putting them out there in a way where you can share them because know that when they just come out, yes, they're a form of play, right? They'll give you joy just in the act of doing it. But purpose only comes when the something in you serves humanity. So it'll stay play, but it will not move over to purpose until it can touch others in some way. So what ended up happening for me is my will to meaning was so great that I had to bear through the fear of bombing, which I did, by the way. I had to bear through my fear of bombing because my desire to get these products in the hands of children and potentially unleash their imagination was so great. So I think it's, it's right. It's which is greater. At some point, your need for meaning becomes greater than your fear of failing. And for me, it finally switched because I knew that fear of failing was doing nothing except imprisoning me in this tiny little box that I couldn't get out of. One of the most incredible things about being a a product designer for like 34 years is that I was a perfectionist. And when I say a perfectionist, I mean like the most perfectionistic person ever. It almost killed me. I mean, that's how I came this close to taking my life. I tried to take my life when I got an incomplete on an assignment in college. That's how rigid I was about being perfect. So the true irony of my life is that I would end up creating products because the truth is you can never know the success of a product ahead of time. And you can never, even though people will try to tell you they can ask consumers what they want, they can't ask consumers what they want. In fact, Henry Ford, one of his his best quotes is, if I ask customers what they want, they, they would have said faster horses. You know, like they really don't know until they see it. So unfortunately, I had to put my products out there again and again and again and fail continually in order to get the successes. And the the funny story is well into Melissa and Doug, about six years ago, we ended up hiring a very um, erudite consultant from Harvard and McKinsey who decided, this wasn't what he was supposed to do, but he decided that he wanted to quantify how often I succeeded at making products. And his contention was, if he could get me to succeed more, Melissa and Doug would be more successful. So he studied the last like five years of introductions at Melissa and Doug, and he came up with this horrific stat that I was only successful less than 40% of the time which meant that I, I failed two thirds of the time. I was like a baseball player, right? I was, I was like batting about 350 and, and he was horrified and he decided 
that I needed to take fewer, bigger bets and gain many more consumer insights and market data and do more focus groups to ensure success. And I was um, appalled and devastated that he wanted to really change our company because the way I create is completely different. I'm a believer in planting as many seeds as you humanly can. Like literally an entire, you know, meadow full of seeds, watering them, giving them sunlight, fertilizer, and then waiting. And the truth is you never know which are going to grow that bumper crop. So anyway, this was the antithesis of, um, of how I create. Wow. That's so interesting to hear. I have to tell you, just like, I can't help but think of the joy that you brought to our lives. Like, I mean, anybody who has a kid knows about Melissa and Doug, I would say, right? Like, we still love your toys because, you know, I remember, like, I think some of the first ones that he had were like wooden puzzles and stuff. And so the idea that you need to do like more focus groups and stuff, I mean, what you do is wonderful and no increased consumer insights are are going to help, I don't think. So good for you. Well, you know, as I started to read more, I w- I really became fascinated by creativity and people who've created. And what I learned through reading some incredible books, I- I've read some amazing books on creativity, is that actually, once you reach a certain level of mastery, it is actually, so, so when they talk about musicians, way back in the, the Bach, Beethoven, Mozart era. And they said that really that entire peer group had the same level roughly of skill. But the reason like those three, you hear about many more than hundreds of others who were really quite accomplished was simply because they were much more prolific in the number of creations they spawned. And when I read that, uh, I was, I was just overjoyed because I, I believe the same thing. I believe that once you hit that level, right, of, of you know, of caliber, um, it's all about the number of swings you take. And the more swings, the more potential hits. And you can never, ever know ahead of time. And also, too, I'm thinking, like, if you had gone down this, like, statistic data-driven methodology it probably would have sucked all the joy out of it for you and then how creative would you have been if it's no longer fun well and and the point is if you if you use the data on what is already successful what are you going to create you're going to create more of the same so you know when when I create it's it's pure intuition like there's nothing else it's it's my own method of data aggregation. So don't get me wrong. I'm not just sitting there and like putting my arms up and ideas are popping into my head. I'm learning about every single thing. When, when we created Wooden Toys, I went to this uh, muse- museum in Brooklyn, the Brooklyn, it's like the Brooklyn Children's Museum. And for two months, I researched Wooden Toys from the beginning of time literally from like the wheel. (laughs) Um, I wanted to know everything that had ever been created in wood. And it was the most, I was like intoxicated. It was the best thing I had ever done because I learned about play patterns. And I was shocked to see that a lot of these play patterns, they were, they formed like thousands of years ago. And what kids enjoyed back then are very similar to what they enjoy today. So it was really not, you know, not inventing new play patterns. It was really more about reimagining them to make them fun and fresh and more relevant to kids today. So, uh, you know, it's all about rabid research and rabid studying of kids. It's just very different than someone who's been sort of formulaically trained and schooled in it would go about it. It's more organic. One thing I wonder about is you have six children of your own. Like, um, how did that work? Did you like test things with your own kids or that? It must be so interesting to have a parent, like to have parents who do this. Like, how cool is it to have your parents be toy makers? You know, it ended up being incredible, actually. So Doug and I started Melissa and Doug when we were just dating. So we didn't have kids. So we definitely started it before kids. But once we had them, it was amazing because 
they were literally my laboratory and I got to study the things they liked and the things they didn't like. And over time, I started to tell them that I needed them to be very critical of these toys that I brought home to test. And oh my gosh, they became so critical that if they ever liked something, I knew it was going to be a hit. And I'll give you a couple examples of how they changed toys um, in such profound ways because their insights are so pure and the way they look at toys is so different than adults. So we created this, um, this frog game that came with like six stuffed frogs. And it was literally the night before uh, we were going to go into production and they gave me a production sample and I decided to bring it home and play it with my kids. And we were playing it and we were throwing the frogs. And then uh, my daughter threw one and she went to pick it up and she picked up the frog and she somehow, so the way kids look at stuffed animals is very different than adults. If I were going to look at a stuffed animal, I'd kind of look at it from the side but she took this stuffed animal and she actually took the frog and put it face to face with her and looked at it in the eyes. And she kind of gave a little scream when she looked at it and she threw the frog down. And I was like, what's wrong? And she said, I don't want to play with that frog anymore. He's mad. And I said, what? She said, mom, I'm not picking him up again. He's a mad frog. <laughs> And I was like, what are you talking about? And I went to pick the frog up. And for the first time ever, instead of looking at, if you looked at the frog from the side, his little mouth was going up in the corner. But if you looked at it from the front, wow, that frog looked really like demonically mad. And I said, oh my gosh, we cannot go to market with this. Like the frogs are all really scary looking. So the next day, of course, I come into work and I, and I said to one of my my, my folks, I was like, we're going to have to make changes in the frogs. And they're like, you're kidding, right? This is going into production. I'm like, no, it's going to be delayed. Like the frogs need to have different smiles. So things like that, that um, were, you know, you might think little things, but when it comes to a child playing with a toy uh, and connecting with it, that's a big thing. It is a big thing. There are three things that are really on my mind that I want to talk with you about in this episode. So I feel like I need to jump to at least one of them right now. So when it comes to Dabrowski's theory, one of the things that we don't have a lot of is case examples. We have some, Michael especially has done case studies and Dabrowski talked about cases in his work. But the place that I've wondered about the most, I think, since I first started studying the theory is the unilevel multi-level shift. I've thought about it a lot in terms of my own story, how that looked for me. I know personally, even though I had like the, the nuclei of multi-levelness when I was young, when I was, a, when I was a child even, or a teenager, you could see some of the kind of precursor dynamisms. I, I, even as a child, I felt guilt, I felt shame, right? But I still struggled with unilevel stuff deep into my 20s. I wasn't able to break out of self-sabotage, for, for instance. And I really struggled with ambivalence. Was I going to stop using drugs? Was I going to live? Was I going to kill myself? Like these are unilevel dilemmas. And then I know personally in my story, you know, I made the shift. But in your book, I love that your last chapter is called Liberation. Love it. Because that's exactly it. When you are able to make that shift and reaching a true multi-level perception of reality and experience of reality, it is liberating. And I consider Dabrowski's theory a theory of liberation. But there's just, there's a few pages in this chapter on liberation where it's so obvious to me that what I'm reading in your story is this shift. And you're going from worrying about what other people think about you and being a perfectionist and just um, in suffering, Right to finally realizing this is who I am and like creating the meaning in your life. But also beyond that, you make the realization that it's bigger than you and that now you have to help other, lead other people out of darkness as I think how you put it, right? And so I just wanna talk with you about that, like that shift to, to being your authentic self and however you'd like to talk about it. Ah, oh, I love that. <laughs> so it was two steps. The first step was Melissa and Doug. 
when I realized that I could control my creativity, right? And I didn't have to channel darkness into darkness. So for 30 years, my salvation was taking this darkness, transforming it into light and touching children. And that became a calling, right? That became something greater than myself to have the capacity to potentially unleash imagination and a sense of wonder in all children. Like that is for me, that was enough, but it wasn't enough because as the years started ticking, what I realized, and I I gave this metaphor, right. Of turning off the dark faucet and turning on the light. I realized that actually the very toys I was creating were almost the same facade I had lived my whole life. And I was channeling all this darkness into this light in these shiny packages on a shelf in a bright box with a Melissa and Doug logo, but I was still hiding the darkness that spawned them. So I was in essence still hiding a large part of who I was. And that all of a sudden, like it had felt so authentic, all of a sudden it felt completely inauthentic. Like one morning I woke up and I was like, I'm, I'm living a lie. Like this isn't who I am. And I knew I was a full spectrum. Like I knew I was everything from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows. And I knew I was capable of feeling those high highs because I, I did feel, you know, beauty and joy as well as despair and pain. So that became that, that was when this drumbeat of I've got to show my true self became louder and louder and louder. And what ultimately happened, which created the, the multi-level was I ended up going on that very podcast that I had listened to for years. And it was the most un-Melissa act ever, because first of all, I didn't talk. Like I create through my hands. I'm an introvert. I mutter to myself. I like to be in dark shadows, just creating a way. Like I don't like to speak. And I'm I've, my, one of my sort of mantras is actions speak louder than words. Like I don't like people who talk too much. I, I like people who, who show up and, and do stuff. Uh, so the idea that I wrote this guy out of the blue and said, I want to come on your really popular podcast and share my story that I have existential despair and overexcitabilities was like unheard of. But I just, in one like rash moment, I just wrote him the letter and I sent it. And then I was like, what did you do? And I ended up going on that podcast and not even believing I did it because I hadn't even let told my family I had these things. And here I was like going on, you know, sort of this national podcast and well, international podcast and, um, and, and, and sharing this truth. And then what happened was I started to get letters. It aired about five months after we recorded it. It was like that popular. He had to do it that far in advance. And it was even a new year. I recorded it in October. It aired in March. And I didn't even remember, it was so, I was so incredulous that I would have done such a thing that I even forgot I did it. I like put it out of my head. So I only realized I had done it for real. And then I thought, ah, he's not even going to air it because it was probably like, I didn't even remember what I said. So uh, I only remembered it aired because I started getting letters and I'm talking like hundreds and hundreds of letters. And The minute I read maybe 20 of those letters, everything changed for me because the letters said the thing I had longed to hear my whole life, which is basically you gave voice to what I have been experiencing my entire life. And I knew that was the first time I really knew that I'm not alone. But then I decided I wanted to talk with every single person who wrote me. Like it was that I needed to talk with these people who were like me because I'd never met anyone like me. And I made uh, like appointments. I basically contacted every one of them and said, I'd love to talk to you by phone. A lot of them didn't want to. They were like, who is, wow. I didn't think she was going to write back to me, Um, but I did. And when I spoke with them, the same thing started to come up, which was, okay, we all share these deep feelings. We're all, you know, potentially overexcitable and have some existential angst in us. But the difference is 
Melissa, you figure out, figured out how to channel your darkness into light and have found your purpose. I am still wallowing in darkness and cannot get out. So that became my greater mission. And suddenly I knew, oh my gosh, that's what I need to do. I need to show others that they too can channel their darkness into light and make meaning. And because so many of these folks had no idea what their seed of self-expression was, they just thought they had nothing to offer the world. Like I realized that I can help them unearth that special spark in them. And that really became lifelines. So that's when I said, okay, making toys has been amazing, right? I don't think I'd be alive if I didn't find a way to channel that darkness into something that was light. But I have something greater I want to do because making a toy has never really saved a life. And potentially this, if I can help someone who was where I was when I carried around a bottle of pills, you know, in my pocket for a year and, and had them in my mouth many times. Um, maybe I could, maybe I could save a life and that would truly make my life purposeful. That is a good segue into the next thing that I wanted to bring up actually, because listeners, I want you to know that. So Melissa has this beautiful book, Lifelines, that you can read her story, um, and it's more than your story, even like you share these verses. There's a there's a whole there's so much to all of this. So there's the book, but also beyond that, like Lifelines has a beautiful website too. And beyond the website, you also have well, I'm part of your Lifelines um, community on Facebook. There's a group, and I've watched some. So last spring, I watched a couple of your Zoom sessions. And I thought to myself, like, how does Melissa have the, I mean, this is because of me. I'm an introvert too, right? I'm watching you do this stuff. And I'm like, how does Melissa have the emotional energy and bandwidth to do this? I mean, have you had to really kind of up your self-care game? Like, how are you doing so much with people and giving so much of yourself without it burning you out? Oh, that's an amazing question. Yes. And yes. So first of all, for whatever reason, I love it because I've never connected myself with other people, right? For 34 years, I connected through a product. So I channeled me into every product. I always say it has a, every product has a heartbeat and a pulse and, you know, blood running through it, but like no one saw me and I was lonely. Like inside I was deeply lonely because I had all these people around me, but I didn't even know who I was and they didn't really know who I was. So for me to now show up as I am and basically say, this is who I am, like take it or leave it is a, is a big deal. And it feels so good. And I really love doing it uh, more than anything. Like after I do these things, I'm like, I'm like, it's like I took a drug. I mean, it's an adrenaline rush, like nothing else, especially when people share. And I feel like we've, we've, you know, develop this communion that's like beyond, right? Beyond just one of us. And we're, we're, we're bound inextricably. Um, but yes, last year, when I started my book tour, I did a segment on CBS Sunday morning. And I had said that I would respond personally to anybody who ever reached out to me. Because again, when you're someone who, who felt so isolated and you felt that no one would ever see you, like if someone writes me and takes the time to write me, like I have to show them their scene or I, I, I can't live with myself, literally. Well, I received over 10,000 letters in two days. And it sounds funny almost, but it was horrible because I knew that I had to respond to every one of them. And, and by the way, not with a form letter, because that doesn't make someone feel seen right? I want to use their name. I want to answer their question. Like I want to show them that I really see them. So I started to do this and I can become manic very easily because I'm like OCD and it started to take over me. And I started to only be sleeping two hours a day. And I started to say, I have to respond to 200 an hour or I will. And I had it all worked out in my head. It was going to take me like two months. Anyway, 
it almost put me under. I developed such, I guess you'd call it empathy fatigue. And so many of the letters were really, really dark because people, I think I realized that people are in a really dark place. This was in the middle of COVID and um, people were ooh, a lot of people in, a, in deep, deep despair. So I had to have an emergency session literally with my therapist because I was going down. Um, and I also felt like I couldn't fix everyone. That was even a bigger issue. Uh, and I had to, this is part of lifelines. I had to develop a practice at, because what I said to her is, I now accept myself in entirety, right? In my entirety. I now know that I'm a full spectrum. I'm no longer just a, hey, great, fine, perfect. Everything's great. Now I can say for the very first time in my life, I'm having a tough day. I never could say that until I was literally 50 years old. But the problem was I knew I was at risk because I kind of had nothing to tether me to like here. I could either fly off into the balanced expanse of white space and get lost in creativity and never come back. Or in this case, I was falling down. Like I was like going into the bowels of despair. Like I'll never help anyone. Like I don't even have the energy to have right, right back these people. They're all gonna, I'm not gonna be able to live my, my, the thing I promised, which is I'm gonna respond to everyone. And it was that disappointment in myself. So that she was like, you need a framework. And I'm like, a framework? What are you kidding? I'm boundless white space. I don't need a framework. I hate frameworks. And she was like, without a framework, honey, you are not going to be able to be here. So that's what I did. And I, I call it a flexible flight framework because it ebbs and flows with me. But I had to heal myself and, and treat myself kindly and fill my own well so that I didn't develop empathy fatigue and not be able to do anything for anyone. Yeah, you know, when we're talking about positive disintegration and Nebraska's framework, we know that this sort of thing is, is cyclic and you're going to go through you know, phases. You don't just one day wake up and you're authentic, hey, and everything's rosy. Like what I'm hearing from that story is that those drives for perfectionism just found another manifestation in your life and going, I'm going to reply to everybody now. And that's a continual learning journey of, okay, how is this going to re-crop up in my life and how do I continue to manage it? Exactly. And, and everyone on my team was like, you need a form letter. You just need a form letter. And I couldn't do it. I literally, that, that thing in me, I was like, no, I will. And I, and I became very dogmatic, which I tend to do if, if I was like, I will not, I got, I will not do a form letter to these people. Like, because it was me, every one of them is me. I was like, I can't do it. And I didn't do it. I ended up responding to all of them, but it nearly I mean, it's nothing to be proud of. I nearly went down with the ship. Um, but uh, yeah, it was, it really took me to another dark place, probably one of the darker places I've been in like decades. Uh, so it was, it was another, I would say another disintegration and, and sort of realizing that I, I can't do this without nurturing myself, which I don't know if you've both felt that, but for me, like self-care was always indulgent. I despised myself. Why would I ever be kind to myself? Like I wanted to punish myself and deny myself pleasure. Certainly not, you know, be nice to myself. So this is a whole new way of, of being. It's funny you mentioned self-care because I, I wrote about that in my blog recently. You know, I had to come to terms with the fact that my self-care isn't going to be that perfect thing that you see on Instagram of, you know, people meditating in their, their gym wear and looking all perfect about it. It's going to be tear-soaked and it's going to be ugly, but it's necessary because I live in a little bipedal meat sack that runs around the, the planet and has limitations. And particularly if you are looking for authenticity and you're going through these disintegrations, if you don't take that time out afterwards to go, Oh, my body and my mind need a moment, then you're just going to collapse. Yes. And part of my, per so this is the whole, my perfectionism meant I could never show any human weakness. I could never be tired. I could never show anyone. I would never sit down in front of people because I thought they're going to think I'm lazy. Like no one could think I'm lazy. So my 
perfectionism was so punishing that it disallowed me to do anything that was seen as kind. And you were saying before, these are habits that take time to break. So every time they crop up in another guise, you've got to deal with you again. Exactly. Exactly. And that's what I have to, you know, people forget that. And this whole idea of changing your neural pathways takes about a minimum. They say two weeks to 60 days. I believe it's closer to 60 days to even begin to not think about it. So the reason none of these habits work and we, we try things and we say, oh, it never worked. And I always say to my kids, like, how long did you try it for? Three days. That's why it didn't work, you know? And I think it's hard, right? Because our bodies don't like change and they crave homeostasis. So trying to get your body to do something differently, you have to really want it very, very badly. So for me, this idea of being nice to myself, it's hard because my whole life, that demon in my head was like, do you're, you're bad. You can't be nice to yourself. So yeah, it's, and, and some, one of the ways I do it, to be honest, is because I don't want to do it for myself. I say, if I'm going to be a role model for my children, right? I mean, I have four daughters, like, do I want them to punish themselves? Oh gosh, no. That would be the saddest day of my life if they did what what I did to myself. So I have to be an example for how I want other young women to treat themselves. So if I can't do it for myself, I'm going to do it for them. And that's what I do. If I can't do it for myself, I'm like, I got to show them. I got to sit here. I got to say I'm relaxing. I got to have my cup of tea. Like, even if I don't want to do it, I'm doing it for society. So my study group, we talked about your book over the summer. I think it was in August. And it was interesting because we came to it from different places. Like some of us read the print version and a couple of people listened to the audio version. And so your verses, you know, for people who don't know, you know, there's like, there's poetry throughout your book. And it's interesting because one of the women in my study group said that what was cool for her listening to the audio version was that you're reading them and sometimes you give like a little bit of context about what you were thinking when you wrote it and I thought that that was so cool thank you that was maybe one of the greatest gifts of my life and I got really a few of them I got really emotional because you know these were not meant to be shared with the world like these verses are my prayers to keep me alive, honestly. And basically they were like the things I said to myself to, to want to continue to live. So, and they were the questions that I pondered that no one could answer. And they, some of them were a lot wiser than I was because they gave me answers that I realized like decades later, wow, this was giving me the answer I needed. Um, but they really weren't meant to be shared with the world. So the fact that I was actually reading them potentially for other people to hear was like, it it was the, they're the deepest expression of who I am. I'm getting emotional even saying it now. So like, they're, they're really important to me. I thought that was so cool too. It made me wish that I had listened to it, honestly. I mean, I guess it's not too late. I could get the audio version. It's okay. Yeah. But it's like the thing about your verses too, that really struck me is that as somebody who's a journal writer or a diarist, like, I too have produced this enormous amount of writing for myself. That's just mine. Right. And it's been a lifeline for me and something that has kept me alive at times. And so I really get that, um, you know, sometimes we have like these powerful ways of expressing ourselves that are so personal. And when we do get a chance to share them with the world, it's, it's just really special. So thank you for sharing yourself. Oh, you're welcome. And I think for those of us that are really, isolated and lonely, like these became, I mean, I also had two imaginary friends that were literally my only friends for like 10 years. And I recently read something that made me, I don't know if it made me sad or maybe it made me understand it. It said that folks that have imaginary friends are usually some of the loneliest people. And because our biological need is to connect with other people, that is our 
our body's way of making connection when we don't have any. And I think of the verses and I think of your writing as the same thing. Like to me, they were alive. You know, all these things I create have, as I said, they, they have heartbeats. And to me, they are like my spiritual group that's trying to protect me against the, the ills of the world and the demons trying to destroy me. So um, I think of it as that there, 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 there are people. The one thing that I find interesting, um, Melissa, you said you go back and read it and you get new insights. And I know, Chris, you do that a lot with your journaling. You go back and you read it and go, holy cow, there's stuff in there I didn't realise I was writing at the time. And for me, it was creative writing as well. Like I, I tried it and went into this massive catharsis and I actually go back and read that original story that I didn't write for anyone either, just quietly, but even like a year or two later, I read it and it gives you insights because I think in some ways you're digging so deep into those places, like not even you understand like the full meaning of what it is. And sometimes you have to go through a bit of life and then reread it and go, oh, now it all makes sense. Yes. And I think part of my journey in those creations is, you know, I started with them not seeing light, right? Just doing it as a form of, of channeling. Then I became obsessed with them seeing light and became very tethered to the result, right? Then it was about how many get out there because that meaning was, you know, sort of uh, de de determined by how many got out there. And, and I would be very, uh, very ruthless and rabid about looking and making sure that they were successful. And now I think it's maybe another form of kind of the, the disintegrating is I truly believe that as I've aged and as I'm hanging less on to the achievements and the gold stars and the validation that I've really hollowed out my channel. Like if I think about myself, my metaphor for myself is a tree and if I think about my, my trunk as having been very dense, very heavy, and that's why like I couldn't gain the space between my head and my heart because there was just all this, it was all just a lot of junk in there. And um, the creativity kind of eked out through one little branch in my arm. But as I've sort of disintegrated, right, that inside of the tree has almost been hollowed out to the point where now... Like when you think about those things, I can write something and I don't need to immediately like have people see it and get it out to the world because now I realize that I'm really just, I'm doing it just for me and I'm doing it for the joy of creating something from nothing and channeling that chaos into form. And that in and of itself is a worthy act and something that just brings me a lot of peace and joy. So I think you know, it's nice to have the things touch the world, no doubt. But I think when we can do it just for the, the act of doing it, uh, that in itself becomes very meaningful. And arguably, when you do it on that basis, it's more authentic. And when it's more authentic, and you do share it, then it's more likely to help people because it's the purest version of what it's supposed to be. Exactly. That is exactly true. I think the final point that I have on my mind for today is that we're going to be at the Dabrowski Congress together this summer. I'm doing my first keynote. Melissa's going to be there doing a keynote. And if anybody is interested, I mean, come join us in person in Denver or join us virtually. But we are going to be sharing our messages. And I'm really excited to meet you in person in July. And I'm just so psyched for that event at this point. I am too. When I got invited to that conference, it was like the crowning moment of my life because, you know, Kashmir's Dabrowski kind of saved my life. And the thought that I would be able to speak about how he's done that with a whole bunch of people who care, <laughs> like that's just unbelievable. And I can't wait to meet you and just have a chance to give you a hug for all you're doing to bring his teachings to the world. Oh, well, thank you. I know I'm so excited for hugs at the Congress. It's gonna be really great, it really is. And for those of us who, for those of you who can only attend virtually, that's gonna be fun too. And we'll be sending virtual hugs. <laughs> virtual hugs, yes. Sometimes we talk about eating the hot dog. 
So the scariness of being authentic. So, you know, the hot dogs filled with rubbish, you know, bits of hooves and miscellaneous meats and filler and pigeon and whatever else falls in the machine. Um, but you talked about the purpose and having that greater need of doing it. So sometimes, you know, the hot dog's full of rubbish, but you eat it anyway because you see a higher hunger. So what would you say to anyone who's afraid of unveiling their authenticity or afraid of stepping forward and being themselves? It's a great question. I think that when the time is right, you have no choice. So what I would say, honestly, is you're probably not quite ready yet because I can tell you that when I finally, and I think about it as like a surrender, right? The exhaustion of hiding who I was became so great, right? Because when you're trying to be someone else and denying who you are, it is exhausting. And everybody who writes me those 10,000 letters, probably 9,000 of them use the word exhausted, exhausting. This is exhausting. I can't do this anymore. It's true. That's exact. And I, I looked at how many times in my book, the word exhausting, exhausted appeared. And it was like a lot. It was like 10 times because that's the word. So I think at some point, the need to come out authentically exceeds the fear of what people will say. And it's only then that it's right to do it because then you're going to throw caution to the wind and you're just going to do it. And by the time I did it, Sure, I was middle-aged, which bummed me out a lot, but I never looked back and I've never thought twice about doing it. And people said to me, because I mean, in theory, I have a lot to risk. I mean, I have, I mean, I live in this community. People see me as perfect, right? I have everything. I, a lot of people said, like, give me a break. You have everything. You, you don't have any reason to be depressed. Um, my kids theoretically could take a lot of flack for their mom coming out with this big dark secret. But you know what? None of it mattered. I didn't pay two shakes to any of it because I had no choice. Like I had to do this so that I didn't die saying I didn't live a life true to myself. So I would say sit with it, right? They, they know they want to do it. They know they're, they're hungering to do it. And the more they sit with it, the more they listen to stories. I'd say listen to stories, which is what I did for years, you know, of others doing it. And when you're ready, I do believe it'll be, it'll be effortless. One thing that I've wondered about, it's just what you said, kind of in a way, just, you know, people have, they perceive you, well, because of your success, you know, and like wealth, how hard is it to be your authentic self when people have expectations of you and they, I'm trying to think of how to even phrase it, but I'm sure that they have a vision of you that is just created by their own expectations of how you must be because you have these things. And it seems to me like that must be kind of isolating in a way or difficult in a way that people maybe don't realize. Absolutely. And I think that's part of my mission now. And I love this mission. I love being able to say, I've had every material success you could ever want. And even non-material. Like I have led an incredible life, right? I've, I've had every like material thing you could ever want. Like you name it, I've had it. I've had an amazing relationship. I mean, I met my husband when I was 19. We have a great partnership. We, we started our company together and are now starting a second one together. Like it's been incredible. I have six children. And I want to say to them, but guess what? If you have an inner void and you don't accept yourself, none of those achievements will fill it. So for me, I was in a futile race, right? It was like more, more, more external. And no matter what I had, it was never enough. There was always a bigger house to get, a shinier car, I mean, you name it, right? Another toy to make. You could go on forever. And I finally realized, I mean, one of the, the, the chapters in my book is called The Feudal Race. That was what I was in my entire life. And the faster I raced on the treadmill, the more exhausted I got and nothing changed inside. So 
my, really my third lesson that came after you are not alone. We all have the capacity to channel our darkness into light and, and make meaning. The third was until we stop looking externally for our validation and chasing the shiny gold stars and stop, take a deep breath and have the courage to go inward and finally accept ourselves in totality and give ourselves the love and empathy we've been seeking, we won't ever find fulfillment. So I actually think that my experience makes me really well equipped to show all these people who believe that the pursuit of happiness is the goal of life to say to them, you know what? You don't have to worry about that. Actually, that you can waste a lot of time and energy on that and get there and be like, I don't get it. This was supposed to be it. So save your, your breath on that. And please stop looking extrinsically, go, go intrinsically. Cause that's where the wealth really is. I love that. And it reminds me too, of something that actually I've seen in Michael's work. You know, he's talked about the fact that, you know, there's such a, at least in the gifted community, you know, there's so much emphasis on achievement at the expense of helping children develop their personal growth. But that if we help children develop their personal growth, that the achievement is going to come naturally. Like all of the kids who are underachievers, one way to help them develop properly in the sense of like becoming their own authentic selves and achieving if that's what they're meant to do, Like that'll happen naturally if we help them learn to have self-compassion and not be for perfectionists and, and do these things that you're saying. Uh, If, if we help them to live more, you know, in the verb and, and the doing not the noun and the goal. And I mean, if I can end with a verse, because it's, it's probably the verse that, that most um, defines my life. And where, or at least now, where I want to be. Could, could I do that? Please do. It's about living in the verb and not the noun. It's the learning, not the grade. It's the crafting, not what's made. It's crusading, not the war. It's competing, not the score. It's the acting, not the part. It's the painting, not the art. It's the journey not the goal for the process fuels the soul. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you so much. And that's, that's what I'm telling people all the time when I work with them, that it's the process. This is a process. It doesn't happen overnight. It took you all these years to get to this point where you're dealing with this. It's going to take time to get to the other side of it. And so, I mean, just thank you so much, Melissa, your story is amazing. And we're blessed to have you here with us today. Thank you. Well, what you're doing is so this is, this is really cool. You're going to bring these principles um, to the world and so many can benefit from them. Yeah. Thanks for sharing your story with us and being vulnerable with us and being authentic. Same with you. And thanks to you, Chris, as well, for, for joining me. I, I think this is a fantastic episode and I think our listeners are going to get a lot from it. I agree. Thank you so much. And listeners, thank you for joining us. We always appreciate you coming and being with us on the podcast. And if you're listening to us on Apple or Spotify, please don't forget to hit those little stars and give us a rating. And if you've got any questions, feedback, please reach out to us. You can do so via email at positivedisintegration.pod at gmail.com or via Twitter or Instagram. And until next time, keep walking that path to your authentic self.